1: evening, ladies and gentlemen. It's Monday night. Welcome to another edition of Auntie Nanny. With me tonight is the bubbly and vivacious Miss Jeannie Kay. How are you this evening, Jeannie? None of those things. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Is your audio audio fixed or? I, I don't know. I guess I'll find out Thursday night when I try to add the phones into my show again. Um, yeah, Skype keeps doing these updates, which doesn't seem like a big deal, but they forced another one out this morning and I was like, oh, that's bad. Doing it right Monday before a show, that's, that's bad. Oh, God. And they've been, yeah, they've been stacking them one on top of another, which is just ridiculous. It's like, look, just, just install all your freaking bugs and get it over with. <laughs> we don't want to deal with this anymore. Um. That was me. <laughs> um, and the best producer money can't buy. Hi, very. How are you?
0: I'm fine. Mixlore okay. updated tonight as well.
1: Oh, oh, fuck, joy! <laughs> they just they just can't leave well enough alone. You Version got something seven. that halfway works, yeah. and they're like, "Oh, we've improved it." No, you haven't. No, you've introduced more bugs into the system. Yeah, here, let me fix your shit. Screw it up <laughs> again. Yeah, at, at 5.30, I'm like, uh, do we want to start testing now? And Barry's like, do you want to? I'm like, well, they just released an update this morning. <laughs> yes.
2: <laughs>
1: Last week was bad because I didn't get on till late because of Skype updates. Because they're just doing a really bang-up job. Um, has anybody heard whether uh, Kevin and his wife had the niblet yet? No, and I Skyped Kevin, and I'm like, maybe what? And he didn't. <laughs> yeah so, the fact that you didn't answer yes, fake yeah. or maybe it's just Kevin not answering oh yeah, well um, but, with, the, with the newest <laughs> Skype update it doesn't even like ping you to let you know somebody's somebody's messaged you I mean, I have to log in and look I've never had to do that before which uh, no big deal, it just means you got to pay better attention to Skype, and I don't know that anybody really wants to do that. I think seen the bad thing for me is like people message me and they're like, Oh, my message went through. Did you read it? I'm like, Um, it's out. Here upstairs all the time. And I'm never there. <laughs> That's why I, I, I message you otherwise, too, and tell you I, I left you a message or I sent you a story. Um, I wary about the story in Vice. You know which one I'm talking about? The one about Diacetyl and AP. Yeah. The one that just recently came out. Um, I think the government is just licking their chops at stuff like this.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: So I I think that was possibly the worst time for that story to come out. Nope
0: she said something, but it's...
1: It was shit. I think people don't realize, um, and I know this from the old days, people don't realize we're actually being observed by these people. You now you get in a group of your own, and, and you feel comfortable talking, and you say things, and you don't realize that you're being observed, um... But uh, tobacco control is watching us. They're watching our forums. They're watching our groups on Facebook. They're watching what we do on Twitter. And not only that, they're actually training AI to do it now, which is kind of creepy. I was reading some papers about that. Um, and yeah, they're tracking us all on Twitter. They're tracking us all on Facebook. Um, I'm sure they're tracking the podcasts and the video casts and the lo- vlogs and all that stuff. So what we say um, I think could wind up influencing the kind of regulation we're going to be seeing, but you just, you know, that's not going to dissuade some people. Cheney's audio sounds awful. I just thought I would read that to you, Miss Cheney, so you know. Um, I, I, I think it's I think it's the Skype updates and the Mixler updates, and it's just a little bit of everything, and all of it's just been pretty terrible for all of us. Well, I just got a text message, and I need to go anyhow. Okay. Uh, well. <laughs> it was good. To, it was good. Thank yeah. you for dropping by. <laughs> I think that I'm bailing on you. But here's the deal. We're up in the middle of the field where our daughter's getting married, building an arbor. And uh-huh. my husband met us there after he got done with work. Mm-hmm. I okay. just drove home with his vehicle keys in my car. That's not good. Well, it's good if he wanted to stay there, but I, I bet i am betting he doesn't want to. He's not happy. Yeah, I—I I, I can imagine that. Okay. So okay. Shitty audio. <laughs> I have to go. And I will have to figure out what the hell is wrong with all of my shit. It's it's it, what Skype reset all your settings, all your audio settings. The the last two two updates, I've had to do nothing but con- reconfigure everything. Great. So, just so you know, you have to go into Skype and change all your settings because it's automatically, it's automatically changing like how your mic works and everything. Like like it does. Because oh. it, it thinks you want that now. <laughs> <laughs> okay, great. All right, bye, bye, Miss Jeannie.
0: Bye bye.
1: Okay. Uh sorry about that guys. Sorry about the um <sighs> Yeah. We 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 had an ooh shiny moment.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, yeah. Um it was an an interesting week and I'm kind of surprised nobody smacked James Clapper. Well, actually, I'm I'm surprised James Clapper still has a job. job. Um if you know anything about intelligence communities, you know who James Clapper is. So, uh, That was a great introduction to this piece, which just pisses me off. Spy Chief James Clapper compares U.S. intelligence community to Spider-Man. The Spy Chief of the United States compared the American intelligence community to the Marvel superhero Spider-Man in a speech he gave at the Intelligence Summit on September 9th. In a description for the directors of national intelligence, James Clapper, the organizers of AFCEA INSA, National Security and Intelligence Summit, wrote U.S. intelligence is an essential instrument of national power and perhaps has never been more powerful than today, given advances in technology. And with great power comes great responsibility. Clapper took this as an invitation to appropriate Spider-Man and use the superhero as a frame for all of his remarks. He admitted he did not think he was Spider-Man, but said, quote, I feel like I have a personal connection to the web slinger. The remarks at the end of the speech were reflective and earnest, offering his own thumbnail history of comic books. Clapper said prior to Spidey, most comic books primarily depicted the external struggle between the superhero and the supervillain. It was Superman versus Lex Luthor with Kryptonite. With Peter Parker for the first time, comic readers saw a hero's inner struggles, Clapper said. They showed his experiences of trying to keep his job and earn enough to survive, trying to talk to girls, and watching helplessly as a loved one, his uncle Ben dies. And more than anything else, Peter struggled with deciding what to do when his principles his personal values came in conflict with each other. That's what made Spider-Man such an interesting character to follow. People have always related to his inner struggle with decisions. Peter found that sometimes he couldn't keep a promise to a friend, and at the same time as Spider-Man helped someone in need. To Clapper, like Spider-Man, the people of the intelligence community face similar tough choices. I think this often gets lost in the public discussion, Clapper argued. We as an institution and as a workforce have principles and values that sometimes come into conflict. Things like our need to keep sources and methods secret and our desire to be more open and transparent with what we do. Things like pursuing terrorists and others who want to do harm and protecting the privacy and civil liberties of typical citizens, not just of this country, but of the world, who are rarely, but sometimes get caught up in our collection efforts against the bad guys. This is a preposterous and brazen example of the government using a well known piece of American culture for propaganda. The history of the U.S. intelligence community is one of agencies seeking to keep their operations secret from the public. The National Security Agency has been jokingly referred to as no such agency. It was created by President Harry S. Truman in 1952 in total secrecy. Senator Frank Church warned in 1975 that it had vast capabilities. Have turned on Americans would mean no American had any privacy left. The agency could monitor everything from phone conversations to telegrams. There would be no place to hide. That's a direct quote from Frank Church. The Constitution and civil liberties have always been an inconvenience to the intelligence community, which only take on great importance when there is scandal, and Congress takes rare interest in curtailing programs operated by intelligence agencies. Then Clapper and the others have to pay lip service to principles of privacy and talk about respecting civil liberties, even as they work behind the scenes to preserve Stasi-like surveillance programs. Clapper additionally shared, during his speech, solutions for these conflicts are not always obvious. I've been in meetings in which we literally pulled out our copies of the Constitution and Bill of Rights, I doubt the fuck out of that, to get to the ground truth of what our principles and our obligations are. Wrestling with constitutional issues to make difficult decisions is part of our daily business and is just a fragment of what makes an IC career so unique. This is pure propaganda. NSA whistleblower Thomas Drake had concrete concerns about domestic surveillance in 2001 after the September 11th attacks. He went to Vita Potenza, the NSA Deputy General Counsel, from 1993 to 2006. Drake claimed the program which was gathering data from phone calls and internet communications of Americans, was unconstitutional. Potenza did not want to be bothered by Drake. In fact, for PBS's front lines, the program, Potenza said, the minute he said, if he did say, You're using this to violate the Constitution, I mean, I probably would have stopped the conversation at that point, quite frankly. So I mean if that's what he said he said, then anything after that I probably wasn't listening to anyway. What is probably true is Clapper and others pull out their Constitution or Bill of Rights and read the words to see how they can manipulate the language in the documents to justify expanding their surveillance programs. For a more disturbing glimpse into the pathology of the head of the American global security state, Clapper joked and rattled off a list of superficial comparisons. That line, with great power comes great responsibility, was used to introduce Spidey's first comic book appearance in 1962, and in the spring of 1963, just as I was starting off in the intelligence business, Marvel published the first issue of The Amazing Spider-Man. Coincidence. We constantly have to worry about cover concerns, someone matching our secret identities to our everyday normal lives, Clapper declared. Both Spider-Man and his alter ego, Peter Parker, are known for their genius-level intellect. We in the intelligence community are known for our geniuses, oh my god, sorry, our geniuses in subjects ranging from mathematics and cryptology to denial and deception, and even in rocket science. He added, Spider-Man is known for his superhuman strength. A few days a week, I lift weights in our office gym, and my spotter says I'm pretty strong for a geezer. Of course, my spotter is normally one of my security detail guys, so his evaluation of my weight room prowess may be a bit biased. Spider Man is known for his precognitive spidey sense. Many of our customers, customers aren't they a government agency, expect us to be clairvoyant when it comes to world events, Clapper said. This is not entirely accurate. Spider-Man's precognitive sense involves a psychological awareness of his immediate surroundings, and it is not necessarily an ability to predict what events will happen next. For the intelligence community to have this spidey sense, it would have to have been able to detect someone who was downloading secret files to take with him to Hong Kong, where he could expose a global mass surveillance apparatus to the world. Of course, the IC had no awareness that this was happening when Edward Snowden committed his courageous act, and the world benefited from the IC's lack of superpower. Clapper continued, Spidey is known as the web slinger because he shoots spider webs from devices on his wrists. Some of the bad guys derisively call him webhead. More and more, we in the IC are focused on cyber intelligence and the world wide web. Okay, I'll grant you that's a stretch. As if this was not ridiculous enough, Clapper compared the Spider-Man franchise not the superhero, to governance of the intelligence community. There are even similarities between Spider-Man and the intelligence community when it comes to governance, Clapper added. Stanley and Marvel created Spider-Man and still publish Spidey comics, but Sony Pictures has creative control of Spidey on film. Similarly, every IC agency and element other than CIA and ODNI are in someone else's cabinet department. And so integrating priorities and resources across the IC is not easy, particularly when it comes to following different laws, rules, and processes that reside in each other's departments. Um, so if you're going to compare the intelligence agencies to anyone, I think you could compare them to ZOLA, From Captain America: The Winter Soldier.
0: Okay.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Just saying. What? Not the Leopard. Suicide Squad. Hmm? Hmm?
0: <laughs> not Suicide Squad. Then
1: uh, I, you know, get a um, bunch of crazies it, together wrong. to try and do good. Does Will Smith say in every fucking film, "Let's go save the world"?
0: Uh, don't think so.
1: Mm. He says it in Suicide Squad. Uh, I, you know, oh, you're a bad guy. Let's go save the world. Really? I think he just says that to people he meets on the fucking street. Uh, I'm just, I, I am so over this shit. Oh, let's, let's pretend we're good people.
0: Yeah.
1: I could go on and on. Literally, this goes on and on. But yeah, I, I just think it's ridiculous oh let's let's hold ourselves up to something that kids like, really. How is that helpful? I don't get it look,
0: look look on the bright side. imagine how sickening it would be if he'd compared himself to the twilight series.
1: you know, but that would be yeah, it would be sickening <laughs> and disgusting, but it would probably be somehow more accurate. <laughs> Much like the sparkly vampires from Twilight, the intelligence community makes you want to vomit. Sounds about right. I think that's a good comparison. I don't know. Anyway, I just... These people are megalomaniacs. I think that's what I took away from this. We need to believe that we're doing something good. We ourselves need to believe we're doing something good, so much so that we co-opt and corrupt something as innocent as a comic book character.
0: Yeah. I wonder if Disney will take action. They actually own Marvel these days.
1: <laughs> that would actually be quite funny. But I don't think... They don't own unfortunately they don't own all of Spidey I think...
0: Um, no, no. The, they, they own... The, Marvel made... own everything apart from they sold the film rights to Spider-Man 2. Sony Pictures. But the character itself belongs to Disney. Because <laughs> <laughs> Disney bought Marvel. So
1: yeah. yeah, but somehow I'm sure Disney's on board with whatever the government wants to get down with as far yeah, as probably. intelligence. So I'm sure they don't care all that much. And of course, I don't think anybody else gave a damn all that much, otherwise the story would have been really popular, and it wasn't. Yeah. <sighs> okay. So, what other horrible things have happened this week? I'm actually trying to look for something that's not so horrible. Um, and it was, it was an interesting week. Um, politics took an interesting turn in the UK. They actually elected someone on an anti-war platform. Blows my mind. Well, it
0: it wasn't a it wasn't a public election though. I mean, yeah, right. it was only for a leader of the Labour Party. So yeah,
1: yeah. Oh, well, they kind of elected someone labor ish to the Labour Party, which is unusual well, for
0: them. No, no, he's very Labour, just Labour pre nineteen eighty-ish. All
1: right, he's not like the rest of his peers in the party now, no. correct? Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. So. Lots,
0: lots of the Tony Blair followers uh, refused to be in his cabinet, shadow cabinet. Oh no. So, <laughs> include, including, the two, the two women that <laughs> he trounced soundly. <laughs> Although Andy Burnham has stayed on in the Labour shadow cabinet.
1: Huh. You know. Because
0: um, that I, does that kind of shows you what sort of level are on in the labor party at the minute it's like we don't like him so we're not going to work for him
1: you know here's the thing once once the beginning of october happens and once you see the big government bubble start to hit which it's going to i mean it's we've already seen it happen in little areas in the united states with their pension crises And no one being able to pass a budget, much like we're having problems with Congress right now. Um, In October, we're going to have what they call the big government bubble. And once that bursts, I think you'll see a lot of political changes happening that weren't possible before that. And they might not happen overnight. But bubbles only burst because people no longer believe in them. The housing bubble only burst because... People wised up and no longer believed in it. Same with the education bubble. Uh, And it's going to happen with the government as well. Somebody
0: wants me to explain shadow cabinet. Okay. Um, The official opposition in the UK, which is the largest party that didn't get in, uh, (laughs) basically the people who came second, they set up a shadow cabinet, which is basically you have all the same government ministers in your party to oppose the ones that are in the government. So, you know, you've the Chancellor of the Exchequer takes care of the money in the government. So you have a shadow Chancellor of the Exchequer to debate with him in Parliament. Um and that's basically how it works in the UK. It's a bit weird, but
2: eh. Mm.
0: And well, I mean, the liberal Democrats <laughs> although <laughs> they're not no longer the third biggest party, I don't think. Uh huh. they they also used to have ministers, you know, to oppose directly. You no, know, you'd have your finance people, your whatever people. And they'd be the ones who go to Parliament on the days when those things are being talked about.
1: <laughs> Just then? <laughs> no other time. Quite often, yeah. Nice. <laughs> I'm,
0: so I'm like sure you're... you have seen film of the Houses of Parliament.
1: Oh, my favourite thing is there's actually, um, y- you know which side I'm talking about. They work for you? Yeah. Okay. Um, at least once a week, when I log on to they work for you. There's films of people actually sleeping in Parliament. Yeah. That they've got on there. I'm like, wow, they do a bang up job working for you.
0: Oh, and uh, yeah, on, on taxpayers' money, all the politicians have iPads. Um, and <laughs> something came out. Somebody checked. Somebody managed to get hold of records for one of the Lord people, guys in the Lords. And basically, he'd spent a two-hour debate playing Candy Crush.
1: That's excellent. That's who you want elected. That's who you want representing you. They work for you. So, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) At least you've got somebody to debate these people, I guess. Um, Here, it it seems more or less in some ways like it's very one-sided. It's almost like there are no two parties. There's just a single party. You know, at least you have other parties. It isn't just the Democrats and the Republicans. You know what I mean? You have a chance for something different.
0: Go, Monster Raving Looney, or actually, these days for me, go, Vapors in Power. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I I mean, Vapors have a political party in the UK. I mean, yeah. That's (laughs) how good we are.
1: Hey. I haven't got
0: very many good. members yet, but, you know.
1: Yeah, but you got to start somewhere. Yeah. Unfortunately. Um, so, I'm sure everybody's heard about these horrible, evil, you know, little free lending libraries. <laughs> you know what they are. They, they're these little tiny cabinets, basically, that people build and they attach them to trees or they attach them to telephone poles and they put books in them. And it says, you know, take a book, leave a book. Nobody monitors it. Nobody really gets too bothered by it. But um, the governments in the towns and counties around here really have a stick up their ass about these things. It's good to know that people are focusing on what's really important. Local governments in a few different U.S. cities and towns have looked past the problems of homelessness, crumbling city services, and displacement to tackle the real crisis. People are putting up tiny take-a-book-leave-a-book libraries. It's clearly a major crisis in our culture and one that can only be addressed by the full busybodiness of local busybodies. As the Atlantic's Condor, I'm sorry, Connor Fresenoff explains, Local governments in Los Angeles, Shreveport, Louisiana, and Leawood, Kansas, have all tried to levy fines and other sanctions against people who put up these tiny birdhouse-like lending libraries. They're just what they sound like, tiny boxes on stilts where anybody can leave behind a book or take one of the books that have been left behind by others. They bring pleasure and excitement and a badly needed sense of civic participation and shared fun to communities, and most of all, they encourage people to notice and read books. But they violate obscure zoning and other ordinances. In the case of the Los Angeles, city officials did say that the tiny library could stay if its creators applied for a permit, which could be funded through local arts organizations, as Frazeroff points out. This is what conservatives and libertarians mean when they talk about overregulation, disincentivizing or displacing voluntary activity that benefits people. We've constructed communities where one must obtain prior permission from agents of the state before freely sharing books with one's neighbors. And their proposed solution is to get scarce public art funds to pay for the needless layer of bureaucracy being imposed on this thing already being done for free. <clears throat> the power to acquire permits is the power to prevent something from ever existing, This lovely movement would have never begun or spread if everyone who wanted to build a Little Free Library recognized the need to apply and pay for a permit. Instead, they did good and asked permission never. In Shreveport, one woman created her own small, quote, free-range library on, (laughs) on her front yard as a protest after the Little Free Library was sanctioned by the city. And her civil disobedience paid off with the city backing down and agreeing to pass a new resolution exempting the libraries from regulations. But even if they create a special exemption, it's bizarre and ridiculous that these awesome little community projects ever needed permission in the first place. That's how they control us.
2: Yeah.
0: Although why do I get the feeling that if you start one of these little boxes, if you go back like a year later, all the good books will be gone and it'll just be full of, like, celebrity autobiographies and shit
1: oh god only knows I, you <laughs> don't know what you're going to find
0: yeah. but I mean is, people will go and go well here's a book I don't want throw in the celebrity autobiography <laughs> take, take a decent book out yeah.
1: oh look it's the secret history of Richard Nixon let's throw that in the Little Free Library everybody wants to read that
0: yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I kind that. of feel that you know people don't if there is good books they'll, they'll disappear fast Uh, Oh
1: yeah, probably. I mean, that's usually how it goes. Selfish that
0: way, in some ways. Yeah,
1: you know, but I I think it depends. So many people um, read everything on tablet or a smartphone now that they don't pick up books. Uh, I know. Just for, and we've talked about this. Sometimes it's a lot cheaper to get a physical hard copy of a book than to get it, you know, from Amazon or something. Which well, is weird, but that's it's how happening Amazon now, ended digital. up
0: so big was buying up all the uh, old book stock around the world God. if there's an out of print edition right. chances are you either have to have a local second hand bookshop that happens to have the book you have, want, or you have to go to amazon basically they've put all they're putting all the second hand book places out of business mm-hmm. Amazon, but that's how they made the bulk of their money.
1: Well, you know, um, Amazon has an interesting business model. I can't say that they've ever made money in the last few years, but what they've got the cornerstone on is information. Yeah. And that now is as important as money. You know, so I don't know. Um, I think it's pretty sad. Um, Last week I was just reading that the EFF, the Electronic Frontier Foundation, I don't know whether they've, filed an appeal, or they they had um, written a friend of the court brief to ask that the government stop tracking what people borrow from the library or get from Amazon to read, um, because it's really none of the government's business, and it, it would censor free thought. So yeah. You know, like don't I said, what what I've Amazon's got, got, like got is 50. the cornerstone on yeah. all the information about everybody.
0: Uh, I, I've got fifty thousand books on a DVD. Yeah. <laughs> if I ever want to read something, just go in there.
1: <laughs> Shh, I didn't. I don't know. I know absolutely nothing. Um, <laughs> but yeah. No, no, sharing books is not an evil thing. Although. Sometimes the government acts like it is, and I loved used bookstores. I always thought when I retired I would get some like hole in the wall little place and just have bookshelves on the walls, just stuffed with books, and sit there all day and have a store cat and just sell books for about ninety the cents. Smell and of just have a musty great day, yeah. yeah. That's uh, that was my goal for retirement, and that is never going to happen. Thank you, Amazon. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, most of the used bookstores are actually run sort of through Amazon now.
2: Yeah.
0: They
1: have to kind of run online if they want to stay open at all.
0: Well, there used to be two secondhand bookshops where I lived. Now there aren't any, funnily enough. Yeah. Because they just can't compete with Amazon.
1: Well, you can't. They've made it their business model to dig everybody else under. Till there is nothing left. They're, but them. they're
0: slowly taking over the secondhand music, you know, secondhand CD market as well. Yeah. Although obviously most people get MP3s these days.
1: Well, I don't know. There used to be something special about going to the the record stores. At least when I was in high school, the secondhand music shops, and it was just it was a different environment. And you really don't get to see that anymore. It's kind of a shame.
0: Well, you can go to car boot sales. It's about the best you can do.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't know. That was was deeply depressing. It it was just meant to be a light little story, but it it really didn't end up that way. So, um... Did anybody happen to see that Vice piece called The Sentient Surveillance Camera?
2: Mm, Nope.
1: No. I happen to have... I happen to have the print version right here, but um, the video is something to behold. Surveillance cameras of one sort or another get pointed at us every day. You probably pass through their gaze on your way to work, on public streets and in transit, inside stores and businesses. In New York City, there are thousands. No one is exactly sure how many, but the ACLU counted 44,000 in just two downtown areas and Harlem alone. In London, there are over half a million. The average Londoner is famously captured on CCTV hundreds of times a day. There are estimated to be 20 to 30 million surveillance cameras in China. So we know our images are being captured over and over when the cameras aren't broken anyway. And we know that they're being recorded and stored somewhere. But beyond that, what do we know about the cameras that are, what do we know about what the cameras are actually seeing? What is the quality, not just the quantity of information they're recording? In an era where artificial intelligence is beginning to converge with surveillance in the wake of the Boston area bombings, for instance, The BPD is reportedly experimenting with artificially intelligent intelligent mass surveillance with the help of the Houston company AI Sight. How can we begin to understand the data these networks might soon be processing about us? They're not easy questions to grasp, let alone answer, but they're Ross Goodwin and Jean Hans Forte. Both are master's students at NYU, where they research artificial intelligence and machine learning. On the side, they're inventors, DIY makers who build experimental tech to test out ideas. Their latest project is a surveillance camera that, quote, reads a person's face and speaks aloud what it sees. Goodwin, in particular, is interested in how machines perceive humans. I've written about his work before. His last project featured a camera that would send the images it took to a crude artificial intelligence that then attempted to describe it in English. It was funny, and for a second at least, it opened a channel between the human and mechanical mind. His next project, built with Han's software, takes the experiment a step further and forces an audience to directly interact with a roving lens that's gathering and reciting information about it in real time. They call it their sentient surveillance camera. Our idea was to raise awareness regarding the omnipresence of surveillance equipment and the current state of technological advancement with artificial intelligence. Godwin told me we wanted to create an entity with its own sense of social awareness, its own eyes and an ability to communicate with humans, albeit with some glitches that underscores the limitations of the current technology at its heart. It's an interactive art project Designed to get us thinking about the quirky, complicating relationships between humans and the robotics that surround and surveil us. The pan-tilt-zoom surveillance camera is constantly moving and scanning its view area for human faces, Goodman said. When it recognizes one, it uses HAR cascade detection. A machine learning approach where a cascade function is trained from positive and negative images and zooms in on the face and sends an image of the face and its surrounding to our server which utilizes the convolutional neural networks to extract concept words from the scene. Those words are expanded into sentences and paragraphs using related words from a lexical database. He said, as was the case with this previous project, the paragraphs are then automatically read aloud using Apple's text-to-speech utility. Um, There was a short document documentary. It's attached to this. I'll have to grab it and stick the link in there. Um, When you take it out into the real world, the results are almost always surprising and occasionally generally unnerving. Some of its victims delight in the insights the sentient bot relays, while others recoil. It freaks people out when the talking surveillance machine knows something about them and is able to tell them so. The bot makes a few accurate observations, alongside plenty of gibberish. You'll note But the fact that it gets anything right about us at all mostly makes us squirm. In part, this is because we already know that the surveillance apparatus is everywhere, though we may have pushed it to the back of our minds. To think it's doing more than just watching, that it is actively rendering thoughts or judgments about us, like, say, whether we might look like we're about to commit a crime or compiling data in a language that could be comprehensible to us, ...that it could confront us with directly. It's creepy. Once I started to care about the surveillance camera... ...I realized there are so many eyes watching our every move hand told me. I started tracking all the surveillance cameras around me... ...and it was literally watching my moves in the city. Surveillance, in the form of augmented reality... ...is already being marshaled to sell us beauty products... ...based on algorithmal judgments of our facial composition governments can tag faces in their CCTV networks that they pick up, but artificial intelligence can do better and faster. The infrastructure is mostly already there. It's the software that's catching up. Soon, we really will be living in a world watched over by artificially intelligent camera eyes. It might be nice to start thinking about what we want them to see. Regular old humans like Ross and Jean can help. In our daily lives we will soon be confronting AI as the self contained entity, rather than merely as a tool we use, Godwin said. The sentient surveillance camera presents one possible implementation of such an entity, albeit a bizarre one, but it's designed to raise questions about the places these technologies could take us, and the possibilities for technology that actively judges us and forms its own conclusions about its environment. Han concurs. Now we have technologies that can read and comprehend the image. Algorithms that can be trained from images to make decisions that mock humans, he said. With all that cloud computing systems and so much more processing power, all surveillance footage can be analyzed. Looking for something and acting upon it, he said. That's the future I thought of, and I think it's possible right now. That freaks me out.
0: (laughs) Are they going to send it to Philadelphia?
1: I, God, I don't know. (laughs)
0: You know about Hitchbot. I do
1: know. I do know about the Hitchbot. That poor thing. Well, if they send it there, won't be much to worry about.
0: (laughs) Surveillance camera shouting, help, help, I'm being (laughs) mugged.
1: City of brotherly love my ass. Um, (laughs) The documentary itself was really, really interesting. um, Because it actually did get quite a lot right about the people it was observing, at least some of the people. And then other people, they were like, that that is not about me. Mm -hmm. They would have to go look and see what the um, surveillance camera had actually picked up, Mm -hmm. which was just really, really interesting. I I read that in its entirety just because I found it fascinating. Um, This is the link to the story from Vice, Um, And it's got the documentary in it, if you're interested. I find it funny that I'm starting to do a lot of stories about surveillance and art. You wouldn't necessarily think they were related. But somebody is concerned enough about them to talk about them. And make it the subject of their work. And I think a lot of our concerns are very much like the concerns of the artists. Yeah. So I find it very interesting to talk about, think about, and watch. So, yeah, it, that was really interesting if you get a chance to see it. It's about 20 minutes long. But it's um let's see. Something small cuz it's like quarter of. Um Alex will be on at 7 if that's what you were waiting for. With the Kasaf date. I know some people just tune in for that and thank you for that um, I've actually been reading this the um, the long form essay from Bruce Sterling the epic struggle of the internet of things it's actually quite good it was expensive I don't know why it cost $4 to read 30 pages on that but uh, it cost me $4 to buy it but it's still a really interesting piece and I'll, I'll talk about that in a little bit um, there we go Creepy smartwatch spies on what you type on a keyboard. Researchers create a smartwatch app that can detect what you've typed based on the movements of your left hand. Researchers have created an app that follows the micro movements of your smartwatch and is able to detect what keys you're pressing with your left hand and thus guess what words you may be typing on a keyboard. Ramit Rai Chowdy, associate professor E. C. E. Illinois, together with a group of students, worked on a project called Motion Leaks, M O L E, funded by the National Science Foundation, set to be presented during this week at Mobicon twenty fifteen conference in Paris. Their research consisted of a homegrown app, which they installed on a Samsung Gear Live smartwatch. Using the watch's built-in motion sensors, more specifically data from the accelerometer and gyroscope, Researchers were be able to create a 3D map of the user's hand movements while typing on a keyboard. The researchers then created two algorithms, one for detecting which keys were being pressed, the other for guessing which word was typed. The first algorithm recorded the places where the smartwatch's sensors would detect a dip in movement, considering this spot as a keystroke, and then created a heat map of common spots where the user would press down. Based on keyboard layouts, these spots were attributed to letters on the left side of the keyboard. The second algorithm took this data, and analyzing the pauses between smartwatch, left-hand keystrokes, it was able to detect how many letters were pressed with the right hand, based on the user's regular keystroke frequency. Based on a simple dictionary lookup, the algorithm managed to reliably reproduce what words were typed on the keyboard. The research team acknowledged that the Mole project still has a long way to go since there are some flaws in their system. Currently, Mole can't detect special characters, numbers, punctuation, and symbols. The space bar still poses some difficulties, and the project can't acquire usable data from people with standard typing patterns. I guess only people with standard typing patterns. The app developed for the Mole Project only works on a Samsung Live Gear Watch, but the researchers say that, in theory, a similar app could be developed for other smartwatch models. Researchers have issued a warning saying that this kind of device, by design, poses a problem to user privacy, allowing attackers to acquire passwords or data from sensitive emails. Um, This is the video of that in action, if you are at all interested. My first comment
0: would be, will not work on teenage boys. (laughs) Or at least you'll get some very interesting data.
1: (laughs) That's very true. Second,
0: what happens if the person's using a natural keyboard rather than a standard keyboard? That's one of the issues they've got. it,
1: It only detects from people who have standard typing patterns. I definitely yeah. don't have a standard typing pattern. I, I type all crazy weird.
0: I quite often type with just one hand which would really throw it off.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's just it's just interesting the ways that they're getting better at finding out more about us. Yeah. Um, so what was I reading last week about OnStar? Is it Chrysler took 10 years to fix a vulnerability in its OnStar system in cars? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah. Companies, yeah, they they quite often know about flaws for years before they do anything about them. Well, (laughs) we've already talked about Skype, and they're owned by Microsoft, who are notorious for knowing about problems and not fixing them.
1: Well, I mean, and this is where, um, what's her name in Iceland? The leader of the pirate party there. Do you know who I'm talking about?
0: Uh, um, Yeah, I can't remember her name.
1: Yeah, her name is just, I can't pronounce that. But um, she gave a TED talk that was really interesting. And she talked about um, hackers being like the immune system of the internet and why they were driven to do the stuff that they do like with cars and stuff now, when the researchers found this vulnerability in OnStar and in Chrysler they told Chrysler about it and Chrysler did fuck all for five years and then yeah. they started trying to fix it and it took them another seven to fix it I think this is why you see a lot of hackers do shit like this and then release it immediately so that flaws can be found and fixed because the public won't stand for that shit if they know it's happening.
2: Yeah.
1: And it's unfortunate that you have to find the exploits, find what's wrong, and tell them how to fix it for them to do it. And you have to shame them publicly.
0: Well, the one that gets me, car companies especially, or, although we'll mainly go with. US and European car companies here. Um, Right. The Japanese, they do recalls all the damn time. I mean, God, Toyota spend a fortune recalling stuff. Well, we used to. But yeah, things like, um, there's a car, I don't know if you got it, I don't know if it was sold in the US, but it's the Ford Mondeo. It was, you know, a a sedan. And it had a flaw in it, Mm -hmm. which is basically... At anything more than 30 miles an hour,
2: right.
0: if you let go of the steering wheel, it always pulled to the left, right. automatically, it just started <laughs> drifting left, and instead of calling it a flaw, as in, we, our steering isn't balanced, they, they, called it a they actually feature? said, it, yeah, it's a feature, yes. <laughs> it's, it's a feature. It's a feature. It's a character feature. Yeah.
1: (laughs) We want you to think of our cars like you think of the Disney cartoon characters. Yeah. So we give them little quirks. Yes. Fuck your safety.
0: And this in this case it's a little quirk that if you fall asleep at the wheel, your car will drift left.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, but it's it's cute. Yeah. It's the car is saying I want to give the other car over there a hug ridiculous.
0: Well yeah major, major problem in the US because the side of the road you drive on in the UK it's a case of lots of cars ending up in a ditch in this situation
1: <laughs> yeah uh, no I didn't talk about that from ZDNet I hadn't even looked at it um, a lot of the stuff that I had looked at for this week was like um, there's a case going to court now in Brazil Where um, privacy rights activists are trying to get the court to say that people have the right to privacy when they're using drugs. That the government does not have the right to invade their privacy to find out if they're using them. So that was one of the stories I looked at for this week. I I don't even know if I want to talk about it because it's it's a big long story about Brazil and the courts. But I do want to read that, you know probably probably talk about it next week you gotta love this so it's a court case and it's in a secret court because that's how that's how we roll (laughs) that is how we roll there um yeah so i'm going to put that one well maybe maybe that'll be the last thing i talk about because it'll Probably it'd be a lot more fucking pleasant than some of the other stuff I had planned to talk about. Um because, you know, none of the stuff I ever plan to talk about is super pleasant. Okay. Um, so Colorado mine owner EPA lied in congressional hearing. I know we're we're shocked to hear that. The government never lies. It's our friend. It's always looking out for our best interests. An environmental protection agency official lied during a congressional hearing Wednesday when he said the agency responded to a Gold King mine cave-in when, in fact, EPA contractors created the disaster by barricading the mine last summer, the owner of the mine has charged. This was the result of a cave-in and water buildup. That's why we're there at this time, says Manthe Stellanis. Assistant Administrator of the EPA's Office of Solid Waste and Emergency Response. His boss, Administrator Gina McCarthy, did not attend the first congressional hearing into the Animas River spill held by the House Committee on Space, Science, and Technology. Although Stellanis was grilled on other issues such as transparency and double standards pertaining to non-governmental spills, none of the representatives drilled into Stellanus' claim that the Colorado spill was the result of natural forces. But his comments weren't lost on Todd Hennis, Gold King's owner. It is absolutely baloney of the worst sort, Hennis said immediately after the hearing. They blocked the flow of water out of the drain pipes, and they created this huge wall of water in the Gold King by their actions last year. One thing isn't in dispute. EPA contractors punched a hole in the top of the walled-up mine on August 5th, sending 3 million gallons of water into the Animas River, part of the Colorado River system, that sustains much of the American Southwest. The waterway from Colorado to New Mexico turned bright orange. Hennis told Watchdog last month that the EPA dumped 15 tons of hazardous waste into another mine he owned in 2005, and then walled up the Gold King last summer as a means to control water runoff. He provided a photo to Watchdog showing a wide open mine with a small stream of clear colored water running out. Another photo from an EPA report shows a photo taken in 2014 after the mine had been closed off. It shows there was no flow of water coming out, Hennis said. They're calling it an act of God when it was an act of government. The photo clearly showed the EPA backfilled the portal to block the water from coming out, and they blocked the discharge pipe at the same time. Blocking the mine's natural drainage triggered the catastrophe, Henning told Watchdog. An EPA fact sheet also maintains that. While excavating above the old mine entrance, pressure as water began leaking above the mine tunnel, spilling about 3 million gallons of water stored behind the collapsed material into cement Creek, a tributary of the Animas River. Representative Bruce Wasterman, Re- Republican, Arkansas, asked whether contractor Environmental Restoration, a go-to EPA contractor, was qualified for the job. Quote, we're not sure how much design engineering was done on this project, or if the people were qualified to do this, Westerman said. Obviously, there was a lack of planning that went into this because of the spill that occurred. Representatives Gary Palmer, Alabama, <clears throat> Brady Loud Milk, Georgia, and Lamar Smith, Texas, blasted the EPA for creating witch hunts on offending companies and individuals while engaging in the lax attitude when the agency is at fault. Lotter Milk, recalled the 2010 BP oil spill and an appearance by President Obama on the Today Show demanding the firing of BP Chairman Tony Hayward. Do you think we should have the same standards for Gina McCarthy, Laudermilk asked. Should we have called for her to be fired if definitely the EPA was responsible for the spill? So, yeah, I know that was shocking. It's it's worse than
0: the BP thing, because the BP thing was actually an accident.
1: Yeah, no, this was just an act of. We live in idiocracy. We do. Yeah. Um, God, it's so sad. Um, So they deliberately did that, is how I'm reading that. They deliberately caused that. I mean, they've been trying to turn that area into a Superfund site for 10 years. Everybody in the area has not been having it. Well, I think it's a super fun site now, whether they wanted it or not. Yeah. So yeah, well, the government got what it wants. Screw you, little people. That's what it does. Um, it is almost seven o'clock. So should we see if Alex is around?
0: Yep, yeah, I can. Uh, okay. Try and add him. Hang on. Where's the? Find the right window. Right.
2: Hello,
3: Alex. Hello.
1: Hi, Alex. How are you this evening?
3: Good. How are you?
1: I'm good. Um, Good evening and welcome to the CASA update for the week of 9-14-2015. So, can you tell us what's been going on lately, Alex?
3: (laughs) Um, Well, an appropriate place to start would be California. Um, I'm actually looking at a... Uh, draft ordinance from El Cerrito
2: oh, God. or El Cerrito.
3: Cerrito. I don't know if they go with the hard T there. El mm-hmm. Cerrito, California. Um, and there's going to be, <clears throat> I guess they're introducing the uh, draft ordinance tomorrow evening. I haven't really dug into this, but uh, I was just reading it. Uh, and I believe somewhere in here, there is a proposed flavor ban, (laughs) mostly because I guess they're gonna redefine uh, electronic smoking device. Um, Yep, flavored tobacco product includes electronic cigarettes. Um, So El Cerrito uh, I believe we have an existing call to action for this or something else in El Cerrito. I think so. Um, so, uh, I, so I so I apologize. I I drove around my neighborhood for half an hour looking for parking. So oh, no. um, I have not really had a chance to sit down and go over stuff. Um, Sorry, nah, it's not sure it's not your fault. I live in a I live in the most densely populated city in America, so um, <laughs> parking tends to be a bit of a problem. Yeah. Um so, uh, anyway, that's that. But the real news out of California is all of the horrible tobacco control bills um, that were in the special session. Which, if if you haven't been following this, or if, if you're new to this, whatever... Um, <laughs> <clears throat> So, this special session was brought about um, I believe there was a transportation bill or there was something that had to do with the budget and transportation that uh, really needed to get addressed and so they called the sort of the first special session and the second special set are extraordinary sessions <laughs> um, and the public health extraordinary session. Uh, I was another budget thing and there were some very real, uh, you know, healthcare type considerations that California was dealing with. And so right. this was to a, a handful of lawmakers a perfect opportunity to slide in all of these other bills to kind of circumvent the normal legislative process because... Uh, traditionally or I guess as is just the normal process in California right.
2: uh,
3: any kind of tobacco related bill ends up going in front of the assembly governmental organizational organization committee right. and they in the past, over the past couple of years and I guess traditionally they are uh, somewhat friendly to tobacco um, so It's very, very difficult to pass any kind of tobacco control type legislation through this committee.
2: Uh,
3: And this is essentially what we saw again this year. Mm -hmm. Uh, Senator Leno introduced SB 140. It made it through the Senate, I think, with no problem and got to this assembly, the GO committee. And that's where it was amended. And he you know, raised a huge stink and said, uh, you know, I can't put my name on this bill anymore. It's been, you know, I just, whatever. Um, you know, this was a bill even after the, the GO committee got them. Essentially what happened in the committee was they just took out the language or they changed the language that regulated electronic cigarettes as essentially combustible tobacco products. Um, and, uh, just that minor change. I mean, it still, I think, strengthened, you know, regulations that prohibit minors from getting a hold of these things, and you know, it's it strengthened a lot of regulations. But because he lost that definition, he walked away from the bill. Um, so, yeah, that is to kind of summarize for for folks who haven't uh, been following this very closely. So um, he's like this, that guy go ahead he's
1: kind of like that he's kind of like that senator in Oregon that every year tries to make it so that all nicotine containing products are are only available with a prescription you know it, it never passes he throws a fit and every year he comes back with the same thing he's kind of like california kind of like that guy he's he's kind of like that guy from Oregon sorry
3: yeah no i think there well, there's one in new york we have uh you know senator Kemp hannon uh, and um, uh, what is her name? I get the Rosen, the Rosenberg or Rosenbaum, um, Rosenfeld. I get them all mixed up. Uh, I, I think it's the,
1: Rosenberg, but
3: yeah, yeah, there are two tobacco control uh, women who their last name begins with Rosen, and one's from New Jersey, New Jersey Gasp, and then there's the other. Uh, uh, I believe she is an assembly member uh, from New York, and so I get them confused. Because of their last names. They're, di- they're different. They're Rosen something. Um, but yes, uh, so uh, let's, I think it's, they might actually have the same first name. Wow, this is driving me crazy. Um, Sorry. So her and Camp Hannon, uh, Senator Camp Hannon, uh, bring back this sort of four to eight <laughs> tobacco <laughs> bills every year in New York. Um, so yeah, if you've been paying attention to New York and California, you can expect to see all of this legislation again um, in in December and January, um,
2: Yay.
3: and so this is a really uh, this is this brings up a very important point. Um, I'm sure that there are thousands of vapors in California that are ecstatic about the results of this special session. That being that none of these bills really went anywhere. The session adjourned um, before they were brought to the floor in the assembly. Um, But since these are special sessions, uh, I I believe if I read this correctly, they can sort of come back up over the next few months. They they may not actually get to a full floor vote. You know, the entire legislature may not, there might not be enough legislators in town to, you know, to to, to take a vote on anything. I I don't exactly know how the special sessions work.
1: So these are zombie vaping bills, basically at any point they could come back and try to bite you.
3: Well, you can pretty much, yes, they are zombie bills um, and quite lethal. Uh, (laughs) uh, They they will most likely uh, be reintroduced at the beginning of the session next year, which is always to me kind of frightening because you know, you, you sort of gotten a, a jump start on this stuff. So, mm-hmm. you know, some of these bills that we saw in the extraordinary session, they didn't really get introduced until this summer. So, and it was a, you know, there was a lot of pressure to get this stuff passed. And so, you know, whatever, it just it just didn't happen. But if they come in at you know on the first week of the regular legislative session, then they've got you know nine months to get this stuff dealt with. So now they've got even more time. Um, and, and so that's particularly frightening. Um, <clears throat> so, yes, this is, you know, we're Kassar would looks at this and, and, and I think some other very level-headed advocates out there um, look at this as a temporary reprieve. Um, people can take uh, a, a, a sigh right. of, sigh of relief I think, <laughs> I think that might be the the proper duration a sigh right. um <laughs> uh, yeah. not a full-blown deep breath can't you know it's not time to to turn off the lights and walk away um right. so uh yeah um of course in the meantime you know we're Carl Phillips is, is working on a, on a gateway study, you know, certainly to, you know, to be realistic, this, this isn't going to be some monumental, uh, there are no monumental, uh, just game changing studies out there, no matter what we want to believe, you know, right. science, is, science is a living, breathing thing. Um, so, uh, but this will be another thing that we will have in our, our toolbox to, um, to To argue uh, legis- you know, to argue policy, um, yeah. and uh, so I'm very much looking forward to that. And Me too. Uh, hopefully, you know, we will be effectively we will be able to more effectively use something like that to to combat some of the claims that it, you know, ah, oh, the kids. You know.
1: <laughs> it's for the children. Save the children. Sorry, I was channeling Bill Hicks. I couldn't help it. <laughs>
3: So that uh, in a nutshell is California. And I just want to, um, if it's appropriate, give, you know, a shout out to the uh, NorCal, SoCal, safata chapters and uh, Not Blowing Smoke, um, who did quite a bit of legwork in, um, you know, getting down to Sacramento, helping people organize to get down there or up there, depending on where you live. Um, and, you know, putting together, you know, a slick series of, of you know, engaging posts and, and, and whatnot to, to get people involved. So, um, yeah. it, you know, it's certainly, um, it, you know, the, at, throughout the rest of the country, everybody's kind of got a different flavor or a different approach. But uh, right. um, I, I just, you know, personally, on a personal note, I have to say, I really appreciate the amount of work and effort that went into um to what they've done and uh, and I, and I, I, I think that, that it was very very helpful and uh, you know I'm glad that, that we were able to support in you know whatever way that, that, that we could you know we have mm-hmm. we have I think we're at or just a, above 6,000 members in, in, in California. Mm-hmm. Um, in the last round of this special session we had over 1500, people. Um, sending emails, which amounted to uh, several thousand emails, uh, because you know they are sending it to your assembly member and your senator, um, and uh, and then there was a, a good chunk of people that made phone calls through our system that, that we were able to, to monitor. So, um, nice. I, again, you yeah, know, it, it's good to see California come together and and, and, uh, and really make some noise. <sighs> So, yeah, feel good. Hugs all around. Um,
1: <laughs> you wear the zombie bills, they'll be back.
3: Yeah, you know, enjoy it while it lasts. Huddle by the campfire. Um, eat the can of beans and, you know, live to fight another day. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, so uh, moving on, if, if, mm-hmm. we're, if we've thoroughly covered California. Um, I think so. <laughs> um, the next two places on fire. I guess we'll look at uh, Alabama. Um, There is a movement afoot. Uh, Alabama, another state that's gone into overtime uh, with their legislative session. Uh, I believe they've got a budget that needs to be dealt with. And uh, the governor is uh, pushing to... First of all, they wanted to raise taxes on cigarettes. And I think that may have extended to other tobacco products. I, I have to go back and read the, the bill. Um, but uh, they actually wanted a pretty large tax increase on, on cigarettes. And uh, that was somewhat shut down. I think it came down to 25 cents a pack uh, was was the, the rate. They were raising the tax on cigarettes to 20 raising it by 25 cents. In fact, I don't know what the total is going to be, oh, um, but uh, they didn't get exactly what they wanted. Um, but there is still, um, some hubbub in the legislature that there, there is a, I I believe a Senator, um, pushing for extending tobacco taxes to include, uh, vapor products. Nice. Um, so it, before the weekend there was a threat that vapor products would make it into this this tobacco tax hike bill um but uh, uh it was it never made it in as far as i understand
2: okay. um,
3: but there is still another vehicle through which these taxes could be applied so um i'm you know trying to keep tabs on this the best i can um, the Breathe Easy Alliance of Alabama. Uh, check their Facebook page out. Uh, they have been, uh, I believe, they're working with a lobbyist, and um, they're actually, you know, right up front with this. Um, so uh, they they have some good information on their Facebook page, and okay. I I need to check that myself. Um, <laughs> so uh, you know, if they. To be honest, you know, again, you know, at the state level when somebody is, uh, when people have things handled, sometimes we can take kind of a hands-off approach to stuff. But, uh, uh, you know, Alabama, we're, you know, we're here if you need a little help. Um, We can certainly put some stuff out and work to mobilize the consumer pretty effectively. So, um, so that's that, Uh, you know, we'll be following that this week and and see what happens. Um, and then on to Chicago. Um, I believe it was two weeks ago I put out a kind of a call to action. Um, Ram, Mayor Rahm Emanuel held three um, kind of town hall style meetings in Chicago. Right. which I just went back and started watching Parks and Recreation with my wife. Um, and every time they have one of those kind of public hearings, I mean, mm-hmm. it is kind of funny. I mean, it's it's a funny show. That's it's comedy. So, you know, mm-hmm. you get that one guy. That's was it the, the woman that's just like, I ate a sandwich that I found in your park and it made me sick. There should be <laughs> signs in your park. Just don't eat sandwiches, or something like that. I, I sort of imagine that. But the, you know, the but the residents of Chicago are expressing very real rage. (laughs) Um, so I, I guess I, to some extent, I think you have to be a bit insane to even to, to want to be the mayor of Chicago or a major metropolitan city. I I just, I I don't know how these people do it. I'm sure there's something, some sort of clinical diagnosis for it, but, um, (laughs) Uh, so that's about how well these public hearings went. And I do believe there was one person that went up and was able to speak about the electronic cigarette issue. Um, and, uh, so I, we might've covered all of this already, but now we're moving into this week and, uh, we don't have a date to, uh, to give you on, on when we think this proposed ordinance or law is going to, uh, be introduced into city council. But, um, it's a very real threat. Uh, there is a uh, an alderman who is uh, going to be likely proposing uh, a tax on electronic cigarettes that would essentially tax them at the same rate as cigarettes. Um, it's very much like D.C. Um, I yeah. assume um, uh, who else was trying to do it.
1: Oh, there are a bunch of places. I mean, mostly yeah. little municipalities but i don't think that that many of them passed because there's there's a really there's really no way to get tax parity between the two um they can try but
3: to be honest i i think that that the washington dc model is probably the closest thing to it where it's based on a percentage um and uh yeah, so it's it's not exactly one for one, I think, but uh, it's very close, and still, you know, as far as as we're concerned, a very damaging.
1: Well, it's going to drive businesses right business right out. Small business owners are going to be shut down, and there go jobs. I. <sighs> yeah. They've quickly smacked right into the laffer curve with this stuff. <laughs> Shame.
3: Yeah, and um, you know, it, it's it's not doing anybody any favors. Uh, it's certainly not benefiting public health. And uh, you know, the the one, and I I think I mentioned this last week. The the one really important thing to come out of the Public Health England report is that you know, the very simply put statement of we should be Promoting these products to people and and not discouraging use. And, you know, we we can we can gravitate toward the subtext of tobacco taxes and say this is all about the money. But, you know, what they sell this to the public as is a uh, an effort to discourage people from initiating young people from initiating on these products and existing users to to use them so much um so you know uh, these people have never walked into a vape shop and experienced you know a 20 dollars starter kit uh you know which to a smoker who's used to spending you know anywhere from five to eight dollars a pack Mm -hmm. you know that's a huge investment and you, you know for even for people who have respectable jobs making tens of thousands of dollars a year you know, looking at these products, there's there's a sticker shock there, and right. so, you know, and I I can't I don't know what I mean. I know that parents get their kids cell phones now,
2: mm-hmm. but
3: I, I mean, what kind of allowance are, are people giving their kids that they can afford? You know, high end I mean, vaping products, and you know, like
1: <laughs> I, I don't know, I, I can't even imagine because I can't afford anything high end. Um, So, you know, uh, imagining somebody with, like, uh, say, you know, one of Cisco's rebuildable Addy's and a really nice 200 watt chipped mod, um, I I just have to find myself imagining it because I I can't, I, I couldn't even tell you. Maybe it's teenagers who have their own jobs. Making really good money. I don't know what that would be, though. Right. Because most kids don't have jobs. So, I, I I don't know. But you're right. Public health is completely out of touch with with the common man. Um, the fears that they bring up and, and all these other things, they're not... They don't resonate with people in the real world. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Especially when it comes to the amount of money they think that children are spending on this stuff i I don't know they don't live in the same stratosphere as we do i think
3: <laughs> yeah, and you know and the bar for being a uh, lifetime user of the demon nicotine if you're <laughs> a young person is is remarkably low yeah. um So uh, you know, and you know, every time I see one of these studies, I think about it. And you know, for me, you know, getting hooked on cigarettes was a process. It wasn't, you know, I didn't, you know, my first couple of cigarettes actually made me physically ill. Um, It it wasn't, you know, I didn't, I didn't take a puff off a cigarette and immediately turn to a life of crime. It was, you know, I, I, I developed it over several years. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, and I, you know, I started smoking around 13 years old mm-hmm. and uh, I had to, to, I had to stop for a couple of years because I got in trouble for doing some other stuff, uh, you know, and, and, you know, the, the spotlight and watchtower went up around my life for a little <laughs> while, but right. um, uh, you know, as soon as I got some autonomy, then I was, you know, I was back to taking risks again. And you know, it's. I, I think it's. I think it's absurd. I think it does. A, there's there's sort of a, a scientific malpractice there when we talk about these. When we talk about tobacco products in general, right. from this this perspective of you know, not even once. Like you know, if you if you smoke this cigarette, kid, by the end of the month, you're going to be performing sex acts in a park to so you know. To, supplement your habit here.
1: You know, um, and yet nobody ever brings up that um, there was a hit drama in this country about a teacher who had to take to making large quantities of methamphetamine <laughs> to pay for their fucking medical bills. This is what I'm saying. They are completely out of touch with us. They have no idea what they're talking about. So I, I don't know how anybody with three brain cells to rub together can pay any attention to them because they're just making it up as they go along. And I know that didn't really relate, but you know what I mean? That that's Hmm. more of the reality of how things are. You got to deal drugs to pay for chemo in this country, not I'm going to get a job so I can buy a, a, $300 mod slash addie, and just, you know, vape my brains out and then I'm going to go become a prostitute. That's not what happens. <laughs> <laughs> it just isn't.
3: Well, even, I mean, even on the smaller scale, you know, the concern, of, you know, a lot of this, the, the, the tobacco control science people are, they're looking at the convenience store entry. So it's, you know, it's picking up the say like, for ten bucks or five bucks, I've seen some pretty cheap ones out there, and, right. and that's that's your that's your pathway to addiction immediately. Okay. No questions. If you've done this in the past thirty days, you're you know you're at risk for the rest of your life. Um,
1: well, I mean, what what kills me too, if you read any of these studies that Tobacco Control is now doing, they're actually, and I don't know how an IRB board. Is is giving them clearance for this, but they're actually testing nicotine now on non-smokers. How do you get clearance to test that? It, years ago that was a no-go. And now it's okay?
3: Well, obviously it's not as it doesn't have the magical powers that we have been told that it does. <laughs> that's I guess that's the only way you can get past the ethics people, right? I guess. Uh, and that and that I'm sure that study you know disproving the magical powers of nicotine is is probably buried
1: somewhere um oh I'm sure it's spun some other way yeah. if it's not buried it's spun
3: but uh if this brings up another you know important point, and that is that um you know i I can't remember the specific example and it's it's probably just as well um but uh you know. There is there's sort of a call for measuring our responses, measuring our actions a bit as as tobacco harm reduction advocates. And, um, you know, we, we really do going forward, continuing whatever, however you want to see it, need to place an emphasis on high quality studies. Um right however you want to define high quality. I do believe that there is some debate over what quality actually is, but um, (laughs) totally different philosophical (laughs) discussion, I'm sure. Um, But, you know, for decades, uh, likely centuries, um, you know, anti-tobacco people have ginned up their studies to serve their agenda. Right. And we we cannot fight back using that strategy um because the you know the folks that we are having this conversation with or trying to have this conversation with uh, are uh, a lot of them are heavily invested in this tobacco control industry and they they are very adept at picking holes in in our arguments and and twisting our words and and so it's it's weird we're definitely you know we're the little guy in this scenario not that anybody really needs to be reminded of that but um (laughs) right
1: (laughs) uh, Right. i I
3: just i do just want to put that out there because you know every week we see things posted online and, and, and people you know are very excited about good news and and you know, oh, this study, or, oh, this person came out, and sp-, or, oh, this article, and, um, you know, it, it's, you know, there was a good article that was actually written by a couple of people, um, on our board of advisors, and they used some numbers in there that are not necessarily the best numbers or statements to make, um, and so it's, uh, you know, it's just, it's very important to, to think about that, and, 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 and consider it before um I guess
1: Running publishing. amok with
3: it? <laughs> Running amok with yeah I was thinking celebrations in the streets, shooting off pistols and whatever, you know. Crazy. I don't
1: know what kind of parties you guys have.
3: <laughs> I don't no, we don't we're not allowed to have those parties. This is North Jersey, so yeah. you
1: know. It's just yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, we're we're not allowed to have those here either. Um you know. Much as it uh, might seem tempting, but uh, yeah. <laughs>
3: mm-hmm. so. so anyway, yeah, it was an interesting aside there. I think, uh, yeah, it's the slow period, so we have to find other things to talk about. Um, so I apologize I, if we're just rehashing all of this stuff.
1: I don't. I don't think we are. Um, HR twenty fifty eight still active, all right? have we picked up any more co-sponsors do we know or
3: i haven't gotten any alerts uh the all of our uh federal legislators are sort of just getting back Mm -hmm. into their their dc offices um so um it's uh uh they're they're settling back into their offices and, and, and getting back to Getting back to work, but the the point being that this is an ideal time for everybody to get back on the on the email sending kick, and uh, probably send out a, a reminder this week. Um, your lawmakers are in their offices and and deserve to hear from you.
1: Yeah, that's true. They can't do what you want unless you tell them. <laughs> well, all right. They can't pretend to do what you want unless you tell them. <laughs> And that's always important. Yeah. So, um, and I guess it, would that be it?
3: Pretty much. Um, we should definitely throw in another plug for the, um, the European version of the, uh, testimonials project, mm-hmm. um, spearheaded, even. Even, um, Ivan. even, even I'm, I'm not sure how you say it, um, <laughs> But uh, definitely a worthwhile project for international uh, harm reduction advocates. Please go and, and leave your story. It's not a CASA project, but uh, it is uh, the folks from Ivun, uh reached out to us, and we were able to give some assistance. Um, and I, oh man, I forgot to look up the link again.
1: <laughs> www.mystory.ivun.org, I think. <laughs> Is Yeah. So um, if you're from the UK, you should definitely go check it out and share your story because this is going to be one of the ways that, thank you very, that we're able to persuade people that this is a valid form of tobacco harm reduction. If you don't tell people your stories and there is no there is no way to correlate those um then you're at a disadvantage so having something like this is is a really big plus it really helps i think absolutely yeah and uh if you haven't already um share your testimonials at testimonials at kassad.org um Join us at org. If you're not already a member, uh, come see us on Facebook on the official Kassad Facebook page or the group We Are Casa. We would love to talk to you. We are Kassad Media on Instagram and Twitter and I believe Google Plus. So come on down and talk to us. We want to help you. Thanks for thanks for everything you do, Alex. Have a great night.
3: Thanks. You too.
1: Thanks. Good
3: night. Good
1: night. It's, it's always so weird to go from that to <laughs> right back to the news. But um, I, I love having that in the middle. Yeah, um, because I think it's it's good for us all to hear this stuff. What's happening, and you know, here at least what's happening that we know about. So, um, and I know you were saying the TPD case. Did yes. you say it was the first October first? Yes. Totally wicked's case is going to be heard. The European, right. it, what is it? The European High Court or.
0: Uh, I can't remember which court it is. It's the mm-hmm. highest European court for such things, anyway. But yeah, so, so. on the first, yes, and they're going to hand over their signatures on the twenty ninth. I think it is.
1: Yeah. So fingers crossed, because um, I don't know. I don't know how else they can, you know, defeat that out of the TPD. I mean, although. Um, Active people sure as hell seem to be changing everybody's minds over yeah. there, and that's. I think once you change public opinion, you can change legislation. Yeah. That, that's the important thing. I think I've always learned from the UK experience. You know what I mean? Yes. So, um, I hope we get some of that here. Okay. You got to shout um,
0: loud enough and long enough to make sure they hear. Yes.
1: Well, I mean that. Make make a loud noise. That's that's the one thing I've always learned. And that's from anything to starting a revolution in a country to changing legislation. Activism is all about making a loud noise. You have to get people. To notice you who wouldn't ordinarily notice you. And once they notice you, you can you can persuade them and change their minds, I think. That that's the neatest thing about what's been happening in the UK and the EU I think So that's just from my perspective and I, I agree with you you've got to get them to notice so yeah um, wow I don't even know where to go uh, we talked about what a jackass James Clapper is Okay, uh, here's a short one. The um, U.S. Department of Justice shutters ShareBeast, the largest U.S. file sharing service. They closed that down yesterday. I'm sorry, on Friday. Um, the Department of Justice and the RIAA claimed another victory in the never-ending battle against file sharing when the government agency seized the domain of ShareBeast.com. The site now only displays... The government takedown notice saying that the FBI acted pursuant to a seizure warrant related to suspect criminal copyright infringement. According to a DOJ release on the initiative, ShareBeast represented the largest U.S.-based file sharing service before it was taken down. This is a huge win for the music community and legitimate music services. ShareBeast operated with flagrant disregard for the rights of artists and labels while undermining the legal marketplace, RIAA chairman and CEO Carrie Sherman said in a statement. Millions of users access songs from ShareBeast each month without one penny of compensation going to countless artists, songwriters, labels, and others who created the music. We are grateful to the FBI and the Department of Justice for its strong stand against ShareBeast and for recognizing that these types of illicit sites wreak major damage on the music community and hinder fans' legitimate listening options. ShareBeast related domains included entities like albumjams.com and mp3.net.com, both now offline. The site's largely interactive Twitter account is littered with old notices about newly available tracks from artists such as Big Sean. I don't even know who these people are, Drake, Kanye West, Lil Wayne, and ASAP Rocky. Most notably, the site was reportedly hosting Kanye West's upcoming album Swish. After an alleged leak last May, the DOJ noted that the RIAA alone reported 100,000-plus infringing files to ShareBeast without satisfaction. ShareBeast included pirate content beyond music as well. A studio-commissioned report from 2014 showed ShareBeast was one of the top 250 sites for pirated music and TV files in the UK, for instance. And when the FIFA and its partners pushed hard to eliminate illicit streams of the 2014 World Cup, ShareBeast was one of the sites the soccer organization asked to be blocked.
0: Well, until this story, I never heard of it. So this,
1: I, I didn't know who they were either.
0: Yeah, I like how it's... Top two hundred and fifty sites. What was it? Two hundred and fifty. Yeah. In the UK, because yeah, I've never heard of it.
1: I'm in the UK. Yeah. <laughs> I, I didn't write that, by the way. I know yeah. you're saying be- guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. I, I didn't write that. That 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 was from.
0: Yeah, I mean, won't someone think of the poor multi-million dollar? You know, think, of <sighs> think of
1: Kanye. Think of Kanye.
0: What exactly. will these multi-millionaires do if people are downloading the music for free? Oh, no. Well, that, despite the fact, of course, about five years ago, there was the, the study that was done that people who download illegal stuff tend to later
1: buy buy more
0: legal exactly. stuff than they
1: Yeah, Exactly. They I mean, how, how are you supposed to find out what you like if, you know, most of the stuff that I like, they don't play on radio. You know what I mean?
0: There's still radio? (laughs) Yeah,
1: it sucks. It's pretty bad. It's worse if it's not satellite. It's much worse if it's not satellite radio. And even satellite radio has... What makes me laugh,
0: in in the UK, we've gone over to digital radio. But the cheapest radios you can buy and the ones built into mobile phones are still FM radios. Which (laughs) mostly aren't broadcasting anymore.
1: Wow. Well, I mean w- what they were talking about here a couple of years ago was actually taking um a lot of the f m stations want to convert over to the satellite channels because yeah. they were saying um oh god um the the f c c wasn't opening enough channels for them to broadcast through mm-hmm. I'm like there's there's only like three networks now I think one's clear channel, one's something else, and there's another one." actually do broadcast radio and a lot of it has moved to almost uh, all talk format uh, with very little music yeah. so I, I don't know how you can make any money off that at all.
0: Well as I say we've, still, we've got plenty of radio stations in the UK but they're all um, digitally broadcast so the old FM radios yeah Useless. if you've got one it'll pick up maybe two or three radio stations <laughs> yeah because <laughs> they've released those they've since everything went digital, they've released mm-hmm. most of the FM channels back to... Well, nobody's rented them because nobody needs them anymore. <laughs> but yeah, it means there's well, now less problems with um, interference with the emergency services communications
1: because
0: all, they're all they're our so radio systems are based on FM as well. So
1: yeah, they're ambulance, so up on the times. fire brigade,
0: police. <laughs> It was Nothing. funny, you used to be able to... Uh, I remember when I was a kid, um, my dad used to manage a freezer shop. Right. Um, You know, sell frozen food. But mm-hmm. one of the things we used to do in, in in the winter when it was snowy was we'd tune the radio to listen to the police and fire brigade <laughs> and listen to all the car crashes. You know.
1: Actually, you know, what's kind of great is um, we have... It's all kind of broadcast on, on, on computer here. So whenever something happens, if you can figure out where to find it, you can listen to it live no matter where you happen to be um, in the country. So if there's a riot somewhere or there's a fire, you can hear the emergency services being broadcast on the Internet, which is kind of cool.
0: I um, it's probably still, you, people on Twitter are probably still aware of it first. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, and don't forget, I, most people have, um, I can't say most, I'm a lot crashing, of
0: people. lol, on Twitter.
1: See, I've mm-hmm. seen a lot of people here um, having like a, a ham relay network. I don't know what they're called. But for when everything else goes out, somebody kind of reads important idea. news. Yeah. Over ham radio on whatever station, so that you can get like local alerts and stuff, which is kind of nice if you have no other way to keep in in touch or yeah, that sort of thing, which is good. I don't, I forget what those things are called. It's, um, it's
0: type of long wave radio. Yeah.
1: So. Yeah. So um, I didn't think I was going to read this, but I guess I am. Um, Bruce Sterling's "The Epic Struggle of the Internet of Things." The new long form essay in the tradition of Sterling's must read groundbreaking 2005 book Shaping Things a critical perspective on what it means to have a house full of smart stuff that answers to giant corporations and the states that exert leverage over them the first thing to understand about the internet of things it's that it's not about things on the internet it's a code term that powerful stakeholders have settled on for their own purposes yeah 14M band thank you they like the slogan "Internet of Things" because it sounds peaceable and progressive. It disguises the epic struggle over power, money, and influence that is about to ensue. There is genuine intent okay, internet technology involved in the internet of things. However, the legacy of the legacy internet of yesterday is a shrinking part of what is at stake now. Digital commerce and governance is moving as fast and hard as it possibly can into a full-spectrum dominance over whatever used to be analog. In practice, the Internet of Things means an epic transformation, all-purpose electronic automation through digital surveillance by wireless broadband. In this essay, which is really quite the read, I'll describe how this is likely to work and what the major players think they are going to get there. To begin, though, I must first free the reader from any folk ideas about the Internet of Things. So let's imagine the reader has a smartphone in one hand, as most people in the 20-teens definitely tend to. In the other hand, the reader has some thing. Let's say it's the handle of an old-fashioned domestic vacuum cleaner, which is a relic of yesterday's standard consumer technology. As he cheerfully vacuums his home carpet while also checking his Facebook prompts, because the chore of vacuuming is really boring, the reader naturally thinks, why are these two objects in my hands living in such separate worlds? In my left hand, I have my wonderfully advanced phone with Facebook, that's the internet. But in my right hand, I have this noisy, old-fashioned, ineffective analog thing. For my own convenience, as a customer and consumer, why can't the internet and this thing be combined? This concept sounds pretty visionary, and it's certainly enough to impress most people born during the baby boom, so this paradigm has been doing well in the popular press. If the reader thinks it over, he can refine the basic idea, this vacuum should be equipped with wireless connectivity and sensors. Also, as its owner, I should have a mobile app or dashboard that can tell me many useful, healthy things about my vacuum, such as how much energy it's using or how many toxins found in my carpet... Also, the vacuum should run around in robot fashion all by itself. That's the standard Internet of Things scenario. It's framed in the traditional language of consumer electronics. People often mock it because they don't like so much unnecessary technical complication in their daily lives. It seems broke, maybe even fraudulent. That's not what's going to happen. So I'll give you a link if you actually want to read this. It's... It's pretty good. I, I actually like the survey. It's not the Internet of Things is how they plan to surveil us mm. all the time. Every move we make. Which is absolutely true.
0: I just hope technology takes a turn and goes like um, like it does in Harry Harrison's Build a Galactic Hero series.
2: <laughs> yeah.
0: one of, One of the funniest sci-fi series ever written yeah. but the t- their version of faster than light travel in fact they have several versions in those books mm-hmm. but none of them sound very tempting um, <laughs> <laughs> if you if you read them you'll understand why yeah
1: well I, I think the, the internet of things has always really bothered me and, and it's bothered me from the time they started putting the um these smart meters on people's homes because there's so much programming on there on those smart meters that even the techs don't understand what it does. Isn't that pretty freaking creepy? I mean, if you're going to put some sort of technology on my home, you're the tech. Shouldn't you understand what it's going to do before you install it? Instead of just running willy nilly at it going, yeah, this is great. How do you know? You well, don't. Yeah,
0: the only people that really understand it is whoever programmed the chip. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Well,
1: exactly, and no, I mean, but that's pretty much in everything. I mean, I have one device that I know is completely clean, completely clean. I mean, there is there is nothing on this device that um, leaks anything that I am aware of. And I've taken really good care of it. And it's the only thing I have that I'm pretty sure is not being surveilled. But I don't own the means of production, so I can't really be sure. Yeah. So all that caution could be for nothing. And that's the thing that really bothers me about all of this encryption and Tor and everything else. We already know the government can get into the Tor nodes. They have. We know that they can send letters and get Tor nodes shut down. They have. We also know that they can convict people based on stuff found on the darknet. So that means that they have a way through the Onion network, right? So this thing that we're told by everyone is supposed to protect our privacy and stuff, it, it kind of does, but they kind of have a way around it. Um it almost seems like as we're trying more to protect ourselves, they're deploying more and more people to put up walls against that. And it's ridiculous. It has turned society at large into a panopticon. You're yeah. surveilled when you walk outside your door, you're surveilled when you're in your house. Um it's like no one can understand that we actually as human beings really kind of crave some privacy. Um, It's why we have doors and walls. We don't live in glass houses. It's why we wear freaking clothes we go out in public. Um,
0: Well, there is this one guy in the UK, the Naked Rambler. Uh, He doesn't. (laughs) (laughs) You can guess that from his name. Yeah. He spent quite a lot of time in jail for some reason.
1: (laughs) I can't imagine why. (laughs) But it's just funny to me that all of this is happening and it's supposed to be the new normal and it it doesn't seem like it's bothering a whole lot of people I mean it's hard to fight against and you try to and you try to make people aware of how pervasive it is and it's like no one wants to hear you let me go back to my Facebook and keep posting pictures of cute cats (laughs) it's not going to make the problem go away and if you don't say something or try to do something or, or try to make it at least harder um, on the people surveilling you and more expensive, it's not going to go away. Until we can make surveillance extremely expensive, the market is actually going to have to do away with surveillance of the common citizen. I, I've thought about it for a really long time. Until we can make it as expensive as possible, it's not going to end. Because the government sure isn't going to end it. And no other government wants to end it. Because, you know, you've got the five eyes. They're all working together. And I'm sure there's other agencies sharing stuff with people in other countries. Um, None of that stuff is is going to stop until it becomes prohibitively expensive for governments to surveil their own people. I kind of can't wait for that day. Oh, did you see what the government did last Friday? My government. No, probably Uh, not. Okay. Um, So they ruined the career of a professor at a university. A Chinese professor who they said was sharing secrets with people in another country, well, in China. He was sharing his work with people in China, but his work is... they his
0: relatives by any chance.
1: No, no, it, it was nothing like that. It was, you know, history texts.
2: <laughs> so,
1: yeah, so the government, like, basically crucified this poor guy and made him lose his job. But they buried the news in the middle of New York Times on Friday afternoon, which is what they always do. Yeah. You know, just, like, take somebody out, get them fired. No one will give a damn. And, and Monday morning, there's, like, a two-line apology. ...from the government buried almost near the classified section of the New York Times, which is ridiculous. Which, you've uh, yeah, and the apologies usually
0: life. go along the lines of, oops, uh, well, you know, and that's about <laughs> it. That's, that's all they kind of do. <laughs> you don't yeah. actually apologize.
1: Yeah, well, they said they, they were mistaken. So yeah, mistake that's that's the government's say way of saying we're sorry. Like so we, we sorry you don't have a job, life, sorry we branded you a spy. Yeah. You'll get over it. Oh, I don't know. Um and yet the more things change the more they stay the same. We're still the same old people. Yeah. We really are. Um I think people just need to remember that. You are the same person you were In the 90s, in the 80s, you still want all of the same sorts of things, a decent job, a healthy, happy family. You don't want to get poisoned by the shit in the air or the water. You don't want somebody looking at you when you're having sex, which, by the way, please cover your laptop cameras. Just saying. Um
0: Well, unless you're a that way inclined I you know unless
1: it. you really like the n s a watching watching you and the wife or whatever um but we're all still the same people, we all still want the same things I think that just gets forgotten sometimes um and if if you really want change, you make a loud enough noise and change will happen. I still firmly believe that I've seen it uh, I've seen violent governments overthrown with less than 10% of the population. And that's with peaceful protest has done that. That always works better than a violent revolution. So, yeah, we well, can change I mean, anything we want to, it's just people have to get active.
0: Yeah, I mean, people bring it up all the time, but yeah, Gandhi was pretty damn good at what he did.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he was. Well, uh, you know, Here's the thing. I Somebody said, you know, you work 30, 40 years and then you had social security to retire. We're not going to have social security. We're not going to have anything. We'll be lucky if we have fucking jobs. The way automation is taken off, they're saying somewhere between 9 and 29.9 million jobs in this country are going to be taken over by machines. So people that aren't educated about technology, that don't know how to write code... Um, that aren't artists or craftsmen of some sort doing woodworking, which a computer is probably not going to be able to do as well. Um, or plumbing, heating an electrician, you know, the sorts of things that it, automation can't quite get its hands at yet. Unless you're doing one of those things, your job is, is gone in the next 16 years, This is what the technologists are talking about. And I know people say I'm a Luddite and whatever, but it's true. I see it happening in my own industry right now. Now they're getting away from people and more towards automation. And what they're doing to the people that are still working is giving you 10 or 12 jobs that you physically can't do that's breaking you. So you have to go out onto the disability system. No, just taking the whole system under and these businesses don't care because it's not like it was in the 1950s in the 1950s businesses were run where a boss put in a certain amount of investment in an employee and expected a certain amount plus more back okay it was a certain yin and yang a certain balance a certain dance and now, instead of it being a dance, it's more like you're in a fucking mosh pit getting crushed to death while people are trying to squeeze more and more well, out of you. What you're describing so is
0: basically... What, what, profit. ...what lots of governments <laughs> keep talking about um, but have basically got rid of, which was in the past, employers had duty of care. They still have duty of care these days, but it's not for... The their employees anymore it's for the rules health and safety stuff like that (laughs) you know they used to care about their employees now they just care about making sure the paperwork's correct
1: here it's all all about profit here it's all about driving the people out of the system and making money for the shareholders I mean this sort of system it's unsustainable it can't go on forever it, it can, but there will be no one around who can afford to buy any products or subscribe to any services. Everyone is going to be basically, oh god, I'm going to say it, homeless on the land that their grandfathers conquered.
0: Yeah, I'm, um, I'm going to have to be replaced by a malfunctioning robot. That, yeah.
1: <laughs> I always thought if, if I were going to be replaced by a robot, I would be the one that... um. Was kind of, was in, um, oh boy. You know, the little white robot that's very, very depressed. He's in, um, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy.
0: Oh, well, Marvin, the paranoid android.
1: Yeah, I always thought he would be a good replacement for me.
0: <laughs> You've got a pain in all the diodes down your left side. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so, it's the way things are. Is not the way they used to be, and it's not the way they should be. And we can change that. I mean, I know I go around saying I'm a libertarian. I, I don't even think that's true anymore. And think I'm an anarchist, and not because I want to be, but because there is no government that takes care of man as it's supposed to. Um. I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen, but I do know that this is unsustainable. I don't think anybody wants it. Um, except for the people making a fucking lot of money. Oh. And even some of them are going, we need to pay our workers more so they don't come after us with pitchforks and torches.
0: Uh, and Unless you're Donald Trump, in which case you take to mass media and insult some of your workforce. Uh.
1: You know, I... <laughs> I know people are, are sick of hearing politically correct bullshit. I know they are. I am. No? And it's kind of funny to hear somebody go off and say shit that shouldn't come out of their mouths. That doesn't necessarily mean you should elect that person to office. And and the fact that he is right now polling number one in Florida scares me to fucking death.
2: Yeah.
0: <laughs> I don't know. But Yeah, uh, he's just—he's—he's uh, he's playing on fear and hatred to be popular. Yeah, that's what he's always done. Oh, <laughs> although humorously, <laughs> I notice uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger is going to be taking over in The Apprentice. Huh. Hey, at well. least we'll have a decent businessman as <laughs> as as the. As the guy on The Apprentice. Rather well, than yeah, the I mean,
1: I, I think what would have been the ultimate irony would have been to replace him with George Lopez.
0: Well, I mean, Arnold Schwarzenegger's got a master's degree in business. So, yeah.
2: That's
0: more than Trump's got.
1: Well, I, I don't... Eventually, we'll just end up with the president that we as a country deserve yeah so um and i'm not looking forward to that day um so i guess i'll read a little bit of this one okay fbi intel chiefs decry deep cynicism over spy cyber spying programs admit tough questions about things like back doors have no easy answers On a stage in a ballroom in the Walter Washington Convention Center on September 10th, the heads of the United States intelligence community gathered to talk about the work their agencies perform and the challenges they face, or at least as much as they could in an unclassified environment. But the directors of the Federal Bureau of Investigations, the Central Intelligence Agency, and the NSA also had one particular mission in mind as they took the stage on the Intelligence and National Security Summit. An industry event largely attended by government officials and contractors, stopping the poisoning of the public debate about their missions and especially about the issue of encryption by unreasonable haters. CIA Director John Brennan suggested that negative public opinion and quote misunderstandings about the U.S. intelligence community is in part, quote, because of people who are trying to undermine the mission of the NSA, CIA, FBI, and other agencies. These people may be fueled by our adversaries, he said. FBI Director James Comrie referred to the backlash against his lobbying for backdoors into encrypted communications provided by the technology industry as, quote, venom and deep cynicism that are making a rational discussion about what could and should be done nearly impossible. The big six of the U.S. intelligence, Comrie Brennan, NSA Director Michael Rogers, Defense Intelligence Agency Director, Vince Stewart, National Geospatial Intelligence Agency Director Robert C- Cardillo, and National Reconnaissance Officer Director Betty Sapp spoke in a panel discussion that concluded the summit. The convention, in part directed by questions from Fox News intelligence correspondent, of course. So you know it's fair and balanced. Bullshit. Um Correspondent Catherine Herridge covered topics ranging from the Office of Personnel Management, hack to Russian troops in Syria. In response to a question submitted by Ars Technica to the panel on how the government could get the global business community to trust encryption that provided a golden key to the FBI and the intelligence community, Comrie said, I don't have an easy answer to that. I don't think it's right for the government to come up with an answer alone. We want to get past the crypto war thing. We all care about safety and security, and I support strong encryption. If my SF-86, the Office of Personnel Management Survey, filled out by government employees as part of background investigations for security clearances, had been behind strong enough encryption, maybe someone wouldn't be reading my SF-86 today. But, Carmery reiterated his concerns about information from terrorist and criminal cells going dark because of encryption. We know they can invade Tor., no, breaking encryption is only a matter of the right program. He noted that service providers already encrypt content coming from users and then decrypt it on their services on their servers, making it accessible under warrant. And he said he felt that there are ways to provide the same sort of access more broadly. There may be a thousand different solutions, he said. We have to get past the venom and demonization around this. Carmery said he would be willing to set aside his push if it was shown it would be impossible to provide the access, but added, I don't think we've really tried to find answers yet because no one in the private sector has been pri- properly incentivized. So hear that? You want to make some money? Figure out how to give them an encryption back door. Why all the hate? Really? The opening statements from Cormier and others were focused on that, quote, venom as the intelligence chiefs, many of whom had just testified that morning with National Director of National Intelligence James Clapper on cybersecurity threats before the House Select Intelligence Committee. sought to make it clear, they were speaking largely to help shift the direction of public discourse about the intelligence community because they love us and they're our friends. Specifically, they want to find ways to end what they perceive as a rational hostility against their agendas. I have something on my mind that affects the work we all do as an intelligence community, Carmery said in his opening remarks. I think that citizens should be skeptical of government power, but I fear it's bled over into cynicism. It is something that's getting in the way of reasoned discussion, and I'm very concerned about how to change that trend of cynicism." He sees that cynicism directed towards everyone from law enforcement officers on the beat to the intelligence community at large. In particular, Carmery said he felt that his push for some way to gain backdoor access to encryption was met with venom and cynicism. Again, how do we get to a healthier place in talking about authority? You don't. NSA head Roger said, we have got to engender a better dialogue on security issues. In the end, we serve the citizens of the nation. All the revelations, our reference to Edward Snowden and WikiLeaks, have made life more difficult for us. Oh, poor them. He said that there needs to be a way we can now get to a collective dialogue, which I assume won't include us, about the role of the intelligence community. A few years ago, we were talking past each other. It was all good versus bad, but these are complex issues. We need to sit down and talk as a nation about our direction forward. You can't get there if you don't work together and vilify each other. Oh, so they're planning on, you know, working more cooperatively. When asked about what their agencies were doing to improve how they handled whistleblowers, Roger, Brennan, and Carmery all replied that they were encouraging people with questions to speak up. That's encouraging. Comrie said it was essential to make people who felt something was going on that wasn't right to bring it up and to reward them for doing so. Right. We're going to reward you by throwing you in a black site. We as leaders need to celebrate people who raise their hands, Comrie explained. When asked by Heritage how the NSA could repair the public's trust, Rogers said, I don't think we have fundamentally destroyed the public's trust. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Some feel that way, but we're accountable to the citizens of the nation and the nation is counting on us. The nation needs the insights we generate and our computer expertise because they've done a bang up job stopping so many terrorism, so many acts of terrorism. I mean, look at the great job they did with the Boston bombing. They are right up there with the TSA in stopping acts of terrorism. So we need to trust them. They're the greatest. We need to love them. Why do we hate them? I, I, I can't read any more of this. They make me nuts. I don't right. know what world they live in.
0: Right. To to get them to understand why people hate them, um, with <laughs> Venom, as they kept saying, you need to get somebody dressed up as Pennywise to just <laughs> follow them around 24 hours a day watching everything they do. Then maybe they start getting it. like, this is what you're wanting to do to people.
1: Well, it's what, but it's not even what they're wanting to do to people. It's what they're doing. And I did want to read this. Um, Yeah, this show is going to be longer than I intended. I apologize. Um, But I guess it's a bonus for not hearing, getting to hear Kevin last night. Um, (laughs) (laughs) 50 U.S. spies revolt, exposing how their reports are cooked to manipulate the publics about I.S. More than 50 military intelligence analysts operating out of the U.S. Central Command, CENTCOM, have staged what has been called a revolt by intelligence professionals. The revolt comes after announcing that their intelligence reports were being altered and manipulated to fit the public narrative that the U.S. is winning the battle against I.S. The analysts are assigned to U.S. CENTCOM, but are officially employed by the Defense Intelligence Agency, the intelligence branch of the Pentagon. The disturbing revelations came after more than 50 intelligence analysts filed formal complaints causing the Pentagon's inspector general to open an investigation into the matter, according to a report by the Daily Beast. Two senior analysts at CENTCOM signed a written complaint sent to the Defense Department inspector general in July, alleging that the reports, some of which were briefed President Obama, portrayed the terror groups as weaker than the analysts believe they are. The reports were changed by CENTCOM higher-ups to adhere to the administration's public line that the U.S. is winning the battle against IS and al-Nusra, al-Qaeda's branch in Syria, the analysts claim. The complaint was supported by 50 other analysts, some of whom have complained about the politicizing of intelligence reports for months. That's according to 11 individuals who are knowledgeable about the details of the report and who spoke to the Daily Beast on the condition of anonymity. The sheer number of complaints indicates a massive and systemic problem that exposes an inability of the military, or the military-industrial complex, to accurately assess intelligence reports, perhaps at the behest of their civilian counterparts at the White House. The complaints claim that key aspects of intelligence assessments were removed or altered as to not accurately represent the conclusions of the analyst. Aside from the censorship and alteration of reports, the complaint also alleges a Stalinist working environment. The intelligence analysts have come forward to report that they believe their intelligence reports are being intentionally manipulated by senior military officials to fit the administration's public narrative, according to the Daily Beast. Many described a climate in which analysts felt they could not give a candid assessment of the situation in Iraq and Syria. Some felt it was a product of commanders protecting their career advancement by putting the best spin on the war. Some reports crafted by the analysts were too negative in their assessment of the war and were sent back. The chain of command or not shared up the chain, several analysts said. Still others, failing the climate around them, self-censored, so their reports affirmed already held beliefs. All over the past few months, numerous major cities have fallen into IS hands, including Ramadi and Fallujah. The official line from the Obama administration has steadfastly remained that everything is going smoothly. A number of the analysts described a situation in which they were pressured by senior commanders and attempted to air their complaints internally before finally going to the Inspector General after their efforts to rectify the situation internally failed. The military seemed to attempt to mitigate the situation. While we cannot comment on the ongoing investigations, we can speak to the process about the valued contributions of the intelligence community, Air Force Colonel Patrick Ryder, Director of Public Affairs for U.S. Central Command, told the Daily Beast. The IC routinely produces a wide range of subjective assessments related to the current security environment. Prior publication, it is necessary for the IC to coordinate these intelligence assessments. More specifically, members of IC are typically provided an opportunity to comment on draft assessments. However, it is ultimately up to the primary agency or organization whether or not they incorporate any recommended changes or additions. The idea that once again America is now cherry-picking intelligence as it did in the lead up to the invasion of Iraq in 2003 is a worrisome proposition with potentially ominous consequences. They were frustrated because they didn't do the right thing then and speak up, referring to the failure of analysts to, ch- to challenge the false intelligence about disputed Iraqi weapons program in the run up to the 2003 invasion of Iraq, a defense official told the Daily Beast. An unprecedented number of intelligence analysts who are paid to give their honest assessments of the ongoing war against IS have come forward to expose senior military officials that are drastically altering their reports. Perhaps Americans should take heed.
0: Yep. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean they're always going to be at it. I see, we ended up in in a war in Iraq because of the 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 claimed a taxi driver in London was this amazing. You know, source into the Iraqi weapons program. (laughs) That's basically what it went back to. This Iraqi expatriate living in London, working as a taxi driver, said they had chemical weapons.
1: Yeah, well, you know (laughs) they can.
0: Let's go to war.
1: You know they can. They can choose to spin it any way they want, but these people are telling us we're losing this. I mean, what people fail to grasp. Has anybody ever heard the Petraeus speech when he talks about that whole area in Iraq, Iran, Syria, Lebanon, um, and Somalia as being a lifetime conflict? Yeah. He, He talks about we are never going to be able to leave there. Yeah. You, know, you prodded um, the
0: crazies, and now they're not going to shut up.
1: Well, you know, really, you want to get rid of some of the fucking crazies? You start with the House of Sod. Yeah. I mean, and I—I hate to say it because I sound crazy when I say it, but a lot of these nut jobs are directly influenced by the House of Sod.
0: Well, and ev- ev- there even are even
1: fucking allies,
0: even Saud have realized. They've made a big mistake because they initially funded OIS. Oh yes, now they're bombing them. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's like, yeah. shit, they might spread into here. Uh oh. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you know, it um, It really is amazing. When you look at the money that pours into terrorist organizations, a lot of it comes from the House of Saud. Yeah. It, it. Some of it's us, but a lot of it is the House of Saud.
0: Well, for the listeners, I'll explain the House of Saud is basically a tribe of uh, <clears throat> extreme Islamists. It's the polite way of putting it. Who basically got put in charge of Saudi Arabia after World War One mm-hmm. by the, the Allies. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they basically went from being desert tribesmen, who had fuck all, to... <laughs> To being one of the richest countries in the world. Uh, but they still had their 16th century perspective yeah. on the world. Wow. Um, and now look what's happened.
1: Well, I mean, I think people fail to recognize that Iraq wasn't always like this. If you look at pictures from the 60s and early 70s, women were getting educations, they were walking around wearing miniskirts, guys were walking around with really, really long hair and blue jeans, um, and I'm not saying that because a country westernizes, that that's a good thing, okay? What I'm saying is, their culture was actually changing.
0: It was old, old, It was pretty damn, st- apart from the oppression, it Mm-hmm. The Ottoman Empire was fairly forward-thinking.
1: Well, I mean, you know, until
0: we broke it up in all these countries.
1: Well, I mean, yeah, you know. I mean, the the breakdown of the Ottoman Empire and and giving, oh God, what is it called? Um, the it, it's basically the the document that breaks up Iran, Iraq, Syria. Um, and and gives them to, like, other countries. Okay, here's this arbitrary border, and this belongs to France, and this belongs to England, and this belongs to the United States. Um, Before that document was written, you you know what I'm talking about. I forget the name of it. Um, But Before that was written, it really wasn't like that. You know, and, and well, this the United is part of the States problem. made a lot of deals with the House of, of Saad. A lot of the problems um, for, in the likes of Iraq oil. and Syria are down. I mean, you can blame Nixon yeah. for that shit. I'm sorry.
0: Yeah, a lot, a lot of the problems in Iraq and Syria and various mm-hmm. places are due to the, the split up back then. Yeah. Because they split up the areas. Well,
2: just because of land the-
0: area and didn't look at the populations that were living there they so you, you ended split up, up with Shias and, put them and with
1: their worst enemies, Sunnis. I mean, fucking crazy. because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. those are
0: the two big factions, you know, the Sunnis and the Shias, and yeah, yeah they've ended up split across several countries and yeah. keep fighting with each other to be in charge in the, each of the individual countries.
1: Yeah. But, I mean, that—that that is your problem over there. And and no one wants to admit it because we get so much of our, our, our oil from Saudi Arabia. We made a deal with these people that no matter whatever happened, whatever happened, we would allow their culture to do what it was going to do. Thank yeah. you, Nixon. That was great. And then Carter and his buddies... They didn't like the way things were going over there, so they formed oh the Mood the the, the mujahideen. Yeah. No, they didn't form them, but they they sort of stood behind them and gave them money, and yeah. then that kind of led to the rise of you know the dictator nut job that we blamed everything on that's happened over there. Not that he was a great guy, but uh, I don't think things have. Improved for the people there since we backed the Mujahideen, and that was Carter. And oh, what, what's that guy who deserves to be tried on war crimes? Um,
0: Which one? Because there's quite a few. The yeah.
1: the, the he was um, Nixon's advisor, Kissinger. Oh, Kissinger. That was those two that really came up with the plan to back the Mujahideen. So. A lot of the stuff that's happening now can be directly tied to the idiots that we put in charge of our foreign policy. Yeah. Coming up with these good ideas. I mean, when Nixon pulled our country off the gold standard and then tied it to oil...
0: Well, yeah, again, it was big business influences that did all this uh, fun and games in the Middle East because of the oil, so, yeah.
1: Yeah. You know, uh, hang on. Um, I love, I love the ability to type a question into the idiot box and get an answer. Unfortunately, DuckDuckGo is not as smart as Google. So it's going to take me a couple minutes to find the name of this thing. Um, Adam and Empire, the Treaty of Servers, the of Nations. I'm sorry. Uh, Hang on sorry about that um, so a lot of this stuff is just really ridiculous when you talk about a caliphate and and a lot of these things it it, it really did did come from us um, and when they speak split everything up. I mean this is what I'm trying to find the name of this treaty because it's actually really important if you actually look at this stuff um, well, you was, can see where bef- all these crises yeah. came from It's been
0: mentioned before a damn good explanation of everything that went on is actually in Lawrence of Arabia's autobiography. Funnily enough mm-hmm. since he was the agent put in charge of basically bringing down the Ottoman Empire Um <laughs>
1: Yeah, I mean, which is absolutely true, but I, I'm just trying to break the Ottoman Empire. Um but they they signed this this treaty. And God damn it. Um binding on the prior relationship the Ottomans signed a secret treaty with the Germans in August nineteen fourteen, which established the Ottoman German alliance. <clears throat> This isn't what I'm talking about. But um, the League of Nations, Palestine. um, There is a name for this thing. And it's actually really well... It's not the Treaty of Survey. Um, Yeah, anyway. I'll go off on this later. (laughs) And I'll probably be posting about it somewhere. But yeah... all of those treaties and and everything that was signed um, really screwed us up. Yeah. They led to where we are now and to blindly pretend that we had no hand in it and to pretend we're ignorant of what we've done is the kind of ignorance that leads to world wars. And you can't tell me that deep down we don't fucking know that. And yes, Henry Kissinger should be tried as a fucking war criminal. Um,
0: he is one of the creepiest people who's ever lived.
1: That man opens his mouth and says things that are so horrible and does things that are, and has done things and has killed service men and women and just gone about his merry way and talked about that um, the game of war is played by smart men who use big, dumb animals to further their agenda. I mean, how is this man not in jail? He sank a ship, a ship full of our service members. How is this man not in jail? And yet he's venerated by the mainstream media and the press, and they all act like he's wonderful and that his vision of the world is so great. It's not so great. We're living it now. It's fucking terrible. This guy is directly responsible for a lot of this shit.
0: Yeah, and but you see. I hope he burns
1: in hell. I don't believe in hell, but I hope he burns in hell. That's
0: Sorry, the problem you see. He is actually genuinely smart and has and has played them all very nicely.
2: Yeah.
0: That's what happens when you have incredibly smart and devious people put in charge of things.
1: You can have incredibly smart people in charge of things, but they need to not be fucking psychopaths.
0: Uh, yeah, you know? I did say devious.
1: Well, you you don't need to be devious to be in charge. You just need yeah. to be intelligent and have compassion. Oh, there we go. That's This is why I'm forever fit, unfit for public service. Intelligence and compassion.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay, uh, I'm going to end this on on a different note since we went off on foreign policy and I lambasted the House of Sod, Um, Wasteful and Intrusive Tax-Funded Research. This is written in September 8th, and it was in the Orange County Register. In this edition of Your Tax Dollars at Work, we highlight some of the latest examples of federal government's fine stewardship of the public purse with regard to government research grants. The National Institute Of Health has spent nearly 2.7 million dollars since 2011 on an innovative intervention to help truckers lose weight by giving them motivational phone calls when they are on the road and having them record their weight and behavior on a weekly basis. The 29 drivers who participated in the pilot study were eligible for free health screenings, hourly pay, and lottery prizes. Such innovative interventions seem to be in vogue for government research grants, such as the NIH has also spent $447,000 on text to go for smokeless tobacco program intended to get rural Americans to stop using chewing tobacco by sending them motivational text messages. The grant claims that 11% of rural Americans who dip is high, although this is just a little more than half the rate of all Americans who smoke cigarettes. The NIH must have really have its sights set on chewing tobacco, though, because yet another NIH research grant spent $2 million on efforts to get women to nag their husbands about using smokeless tobacco. Quote, American women don't need the federal government spending money to get us to nag our husbands to stop using tobacco. We do that just fine on our own. Penny Nancy, president, CEO of Concerned Women for America, a conservative women's group, told The Washington Times. The National Science Foundation is spending $185,850 to study how adults over 60 navigate the ups and downs of a new romantic relationship, and the U.S. Health and Human Services study has spent $3.5 million to discover why lesbians are fat, observing that nearly three-quarters of adult lesbians are overweight or obese compared to half of heterosexual women. As these and other examples show, the feds are quite interested in sticking their noses into citizens' personal lives, at our expense, of course. If such research is truly valuable and warranted, let it be justified by private funders and organizations. Otherwise, the government should butt out of our private lives and stop wasting taxpayers' money on questionable research studies while running a national debt of over $18 trillion. Yeah. I know. I just thought so, it would be some great.
0: research projects are just insane.
1: Well, I mean, <laughs> nice for the government to say lesbians are fat. That's great. Or
0: <laughs> well, the 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 truckers lose weight thing, <laughs> when that came up, uh, my brain switched to something I was watching Psych's this morning. Site Pico
1: Agreement. Thank Not
0: you. Right. Sorry. Yeah, my my. I'm going to put it in chat. It's a YouTube video. People should watch after the show. <laughs> it's it's involved with driving and mobile phones. But it was, <laughs> it was a YouTube video done by a driving instructor where he'd mocked up a letter uh, mm-hmm. for his students, you know, from the government going, oh, well, you know, to, to, to pass your driving test, you now have to be able to use your mobile phone while driving.
2: Yeah.
0: And it's a video of them attempting to do this. The teams, it's hilarious. That's what got triggered by my... The motivational phone calls to truckers. It's like, yeah, the trucker's too busy doing speed to stay awake. Uh, You don't want to be phoning them as well. (laughs) Well,
1: we're, you know, no one ever said the government was smart. And when it decides to interfere in your private behavior and charges you for the privilege... You really ought to be able to tell them I don't want my money spent that way.
2: Yeah.
1: I think that's that's the way to go. Um and I guess that's it for this evening. I mean, if if I haven't made you wanna hang yourself by now <laughs> advert. Advert. Okay, Why spend hours searching for in-stock ammunition when you can use AmmoSeek.com? AmmoSeek.com is a search engine for finding ammunition, reloading components, magazines, and guns for more than 300 calibers at more than 60 online retailers. AmmoSeek.com only shows items that are in-stock and readily available for shipping. You can search by caliber, grains, manufacturer, and more. The results are displayed by cost per round so you are able to get the very best pricing on your ammunition of choice. Find ammunition at the best prices fast. AmmoSeek.com Okay, well, uh, we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening, and have a great night.